0: You're listening to the Deadly Uncle Podcast.
1: A safe space for Deadly Uncle conversations.
0: All right, next we have Matt Patno.
1: All the way from the Buffalo Lake Métis Settlement.
0: This man was one of the organizers and on the committee of the Okmao Awards, the first men's awards, and I just think it's wonderful that we're having these. Things happen in our community
1: yeah matt's gonna bring his perspective as a first responder a firefighter and a worker in public service so stick around because he's gonna give you some uh, pretty good stories
2: starting out uh my name is matthew Patton, and i'm from buffalo lake metis settlement so a few hours north of here um i've been in public service now for four years. Previous to that, I was a first responder. I was a firefighter for 10. Um, I've done everything from indigenous consultation with Métis settlements. So doing a lot of um, traditional land use studies and um, protecting indigenous lands, things like spiritual sites, fishing sites um, with against gas and proponents, making sure that when they're developing and they're building, um, that they're not going through anything important that's within the community. So with that job, um, it was actually really interesting because we did a lot of work with elders, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, interviews, uh, learning about exactly where they fished, where they hunted, um, going out to sites. So places like aco Gas or um, EPCOR, any of these companies, would pay for us to go out and... Um, Review the sites, review the the work that they're doing, and uh, it was really it was really interesting. And and the tr- treaty areas, um, the First Nations, they actually started their consultation unit in 2006. Um, so the Métis settlements actually started ours, I think, in 2016. So I was kind of at the forefront of that. Um, and previous to that, I, I did everything from Burger King to um, uh, machining. Uh, I did quite a bit. So. Yeah, so I started uh, public service here. I, well, it's actually almost five years. So a day after my son was born, uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting. My manager's like, "What are you doing here?" Uh, <laughs> literally showered up, showered up, and and uh, left the hospital room and uh, went to work. And yeah, she, my my ex was in labor for like thirty six hours. Hard,
1: hard work ethic. <laughs> wow.
2: Yes. Well, you know, I was like, you, you know, I got to make some money. I got to support a kid now. It's not about yeah, me. Yeah. There's no
0: celebration? No no, 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 no. No stogies on that one. Just, just straight, to, straight, straight to work. Straight
2: to work, man. Yeah. yeah I'm just going to
0: close the window here. Oh, man. yeah. That's what I was trying to get us. Oh, okay. Uh, just I heard a little loud in loud That's what I heard,
1: too. And I was like, well, let's just close that up trying not to knock everything down on my way back. <laughs> Pull
2: in a China shop. There goes, there goes the set.
1: <laughs> yeah, Trent's not allowed to move once we start.
2: <laughs> Things fall over. So yeah, pretty much after uh, after I started um, with public service, I. I was in a unit called the Family Information Liaison Unit with Victim Services, and what that unit basically takes care of was the MMIWG initiative that was brought out by the um, 94 or 92 Calls to Action. So when we did the uh, initial work, um, it was Tracy Makokas, who was my manager through Indigenous programs. Um, she developed the kind of framework around the MMIWG work that they were going to be doing. Um, And then the Trudeau government actually put in funding into place to allow every province and territory to really have a unit that Helps families of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls um, go through everything, every part of the justice system, um, reopen cases, uh, look into, um, you know, homicide files and missing person files, um, be able to advocate for them and mm-hmm. talk with the families um, and, you know, show them exactly what's happened. You know, some of these cases were from the 60s. Um, we had cases all the way up to Amber Tuckaroo, um Gloria Gladju. So, you know, there was a lot of very high high profile, high pro, uh, like prol- prolific cases that we were dealing with. Um, so with that work, uh, we kind of transitioned and I moved in into victim services as the Indigenous programs liaison. So um, my role now is basically addressing gaps, uh, creating and writing policy um, and do- doing a lot of program work with victim services and especially Indigenous and isolated communities. So um, it's it's a lot of work. I mean, it's it's really rewarding. I get to go into community. I get to see uh, a lot of Alberta, a lot of places that you know a lot of people often forget <laughs> because uh, when we talk about isolated communities, I mean someone down in Eden Valley or up in Fox Lake. I mean, you go up there and you are in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, it's, it's honest. Um, honestly, it's, it's hard to see because like I said, they're often forgotten. And, uh, the, the work that we're trying to do is really, you know, make sure that they're staying within, um, Focus of, of the world. Focus within what we're doing, and uh, ensuring that we're keeping them keeping them you know in the main picture because that's the most important piece. So um, yeah, that's a little bit about what I do right now. And musically, uh, that's a that's geez, that's a long story.
0: <laughs> uh,
2: so I started music when I was eight years old. I played in a, a punk band. I played in some metal bands, some hardcore bands. I was actually a drummer. And I grew up listening to my dad, who has been a, a lifelong musician himself, And listening, sitting at the stairs, listening to him play, you know, sitting on the couch at one in the morning, falling asleep to... Um, All of his bands coming over and jamming and, and, you know, waking up at three in the morning to like the bang on the floor to come help (laughs) him unload, (laughs) come unload and load up the gear. And um, so, you know, when I was younger, I never really understood music. You know, it was always around me. Um, It was just a part of life, you know, and it wasn't anything special to me at that time because, you know, he grew up listening to it and being around it. So I, I wasn't really, you know, taken into music until I was a little bit older. Um, and I got into it by watching my cousin, my older cousin, Darren. Uh, he would come over with, like, Iron Maiden tapes and, um, like, all these old metal bands. And I was just like, <laughs> no, that's music. And uh, started listening to that. And I
1: swear to God, we live parallel lives. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about this before, but I had an older cousin, his older brother, that used to come. And bring me all that kind of music too, Iron Maiden and all that stuff. On the <laughs> oh, it was, you know, it's
2: it was so different because I, I heard country, I heard, you know, fiddle music and I heard all that. But when I heard this, I'm like, whoa, like mm-hmm. Silver Chair and mm-hmm. Nirvana and all these, like, you know, grungy hard bands. And as an eight year old kid, you're just like, whoa, like, this is wild. So, um, I told my dad I wanted a drum set. I'm like, (laughs) I could hear all the crashing, the banging, and, you know, country is nice and soft and a little little snare here and a little hi-hat there. But, um, like, that was, like, aggressive, right? And, you know, you're eight years old and you just want to break things. So,
0: Yeah. (laughs) Completely different style of music for sure, eh? Yeah. More, I guess, connect to a teenager feel Mm -hmm. for sure. I, I could see that. Yeah, and a pre, the preteen,
2: <laughs> the preteen angst—I guess you want to call it that and, mm-hmm. um, you know, so I got a drum set, uh, started playing drums, went through a whole bunch of different phases. I mean, like I said, punk to metal, and uh, did, did played the Warped Tour with a couple of bands. Um, you know, I went on tour, and it was like I was like sixteen, maybe, um, and went across. I had like a hundred bucks to my name, <laughs> and. I remember we, we recorded in a place called Studio One in Winnipeg, and I was there for a week. And my dad, like back in the day, he didn't have cell phones. He didn't have no way of contacting someone. It was like, you get to the next gas station, you call, check in, make sure you know that you're okay. And uh, I was broke, had no money. <laughs> and uh, so I had to call my dad, and I was like, hey, dad, can you send me a couple bucks And uh, he's like, why? You're not, you know, you're touring. You're not rich and famous yet. You're not making all that money. (laughs) And I was like, all right, well, you know, it was was a hard lesson. But he sent me some money. uh, Western Union had to go pick it up at a money mart or something. And um, went and bought, like, cases of noodles. I was like, you know what? I want to get a whole bunch of noodles take these on the road with me. Every gas station, i just go get the hot water from the, the coffee pot, and, yeah. and that was my, my meals. But, I mean, we lived off of T-shirt money. Yeah, you know? Those are the the yeah. days of T-shirt money. I'm surprised
1: money. your dad didn't say, well, you know, if you would have stayed here and played with me, you wouldn't have to borrow money.
2: <laughs> well, that's what I did. Yeah, yeah right after that, uh, I learned that hard lesson. <laughs> and uh, I was 17 when he... I was just turning 18, actually, like the week before I turned 18, um, he got in touch with me. and He's like, you want to make some money? <laughs> and I was like, you know what, let's try it out. So um, I was playing drums, like I said. So he he gave me a guitar, um, gave me the set list. He showed me some, you know, I was kind of fooling around with the guitar for a couple of years, but not like playing. And he's just like, here, take this, learn these. You have like two weeks to learn this. Uh, we're going to go on the road and you're going to come play rhythm and uh we're playing in lloyd minster two fridays on your birthday i'm like oh man so i so i played like two weeks in a row just constant like my fingers were bleeding and they just hurt and it was just like trying to get it right and you know getting the progressions down and making sure that it was all good and i was starting to feel a little confident and and uh you know it was uh rewarding to be able to say hey like you know this is gonna be exciting i'm going to go play with my dad and actually make money and not come home with negative you know two (laughs) hundred dollars and uh so i yeah i got to that first gig 17 years old and you know they they didn't let you into the bar um (laughs) only to play your set Mm. so so every set had to go up to the hotel room and uh you know wait there in 40 minutes or half hour and come back down and And play, and then I turned eighteen at midnight. So as soon as I turned eighteen, the waitress was like, "Don't have to go downstairs or upstairs anymore. You can stay here." So, um, so you only did that for one gig, one gig, one one night. My brother Bryce did that for almost a year here. Really? Really? Yeah. Up in the. Oh (laughs) jeez. Yeah, I know. Only one one day, half a half a gig. There you go. And, uh, yeah, it was wild. So, and that first gig, you know, I was so nervous. Like, being behind a drum set, you're like, you know, you got all these things in front of you. And you're not really, no one's really paying attention to you. But standing up front on stage, I'm, like, sitting there. And I remember trying to be country. I asked my dad to, to, um, if I could borrow his cowboy hat, if I could borrow his cowboy <laughs> boots. I had, like, these nice jeans I went and got and a shirt. And I was, like, playing and my dad's just laughing and i'm like what and he's like turn it up and i'm like i had it like at 1 <laughs> and i was like no 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 i'm not turning Nobody it up no <laughs> no and he's like no no turn it up so i turn it up a little bit more and i was you know i was still messing up and trying to figure it out and i was getting nervous and, and this waitress she kept walking by she's like laughing every time she walked by. I'm like, am I that bad? Like, so I turned it down a little bit more. And my dad's like, no, turn it up. So after that set, I went up to her. I was like, you know, I was like, am am I really loud at the front? And I was like, what's like, I see you laughing and smiling. And she's like, no. She's like, look down. I had my shirt inside out and backwards. I was so nervous. (laughs) I I couldn't even dress myself properly. Yeah. So it it was pretty bad. But, you know, after that. That was kind of the the wake up call that I, I needed, and I, and you know it was what I wanted to do. As soon as I played that and I got mm-hmm. that feeling, I was like, "Yeah, this is what I want to do." And you know, since then, I mean, that was eighteen. That's I've been almost playing with him for fifteen years, and wow. yeah. So,
0: where did you grow up? What uh, what area did you grow up in? In Buffalo
2: Lake, uh, Buffalo Lake uh, but yeah, area? I moved out here uh, when I was six, back to Edmonton. So I actually grew up um in Elmwood, not too far from here. Um Calder. And then we settled down in just outside of Short Park.
0: Mm,
2: yeah, okay. so a lot of, a lot of growing up out there. Okay.
1: Cool. Cool. So you come from I like to I'm I'm coining this term, I think, a family of helpers kind mm-hmm. of like um your dad was a firefighter. He was actually the chief at Buffalo Lake mm-hmm. for many years, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. And then your parents also Took in foster kids. Yes. So, how did that kind of shape your childhood? You know, helping others, and is that kind of what led you towards your career in public
2: service? Or, you know, I've never actually thought about that of kind of how that shaped me in in a way of where I've came to or been drawn to. But you know, like growing up, I mean, it it had challenges, Um, of course. I mean, when you have my parents, I think they. The count was like over sixty different kids and and at risk youth and teenagers, and uh, they were uh, more of a specialized home. So they would bring in kids that were you know a wall, you're running away, coming out of gangs, um, to the very very challenging stuff like you know uh, babies who have been um, taken away from like very very terrible situations. Like I know we had one baby that um, he was put in a bathtub of boiling water and mm. they. Brought him out and sent him over. So my mom was helping my mom change bandages, and um, you know, and I was eight or nine, um, and you know, seeing a lot of that stuff, it it really matured you quickly. I think in a way. Um, I mean, it wasn't bad, like you know, it was never like terrible to see, but it was it was hard to to see because I was the same age as some of these kids, mm-hmm. and you know, and you hear what their stories are. And you look at what you have and you're like, wow, like it it was a, it was an eye opener early and, uh, um, how, how it shaped me. I mean, there was a lot of times where i kind of felt regret or not regret, but, um, I was kind of angry, um, at my parents because, you know, it felt like, you know, you're always taking care of these other kids. And, you know, I was, like I said, I was eight or nine and I didn't understand why they were bringing in kids, you know, like, you know, we have me and my sister and we have this and that. And um, I never understood it. And, you know, you're bringing these kids. And, of course, like, they were, they were at risk, high, high risk. So there's a lot of attention that needed to be given to them. Um, so, you know, I never understood until I got older. And then I realized, you know, like the, the work that they were doing and this the sacrifices like i mean my dad he would go on the road playing music um and then he was a truck driver for for a lot of years and and those years i mean he was doing two or three months on at a time on the road right so you you wouldn't see him and again no cell phones no facebook no no facebook uh video chats so he would you know jump on the 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 truck uh phone or the the gas station phone give us Eight kids yeah, yeah, yeah give us kids a call and <laughs> And you get to talk to dad for you know twenty minutes, and you'd have to hit the road again. But um, so mom was really the the mom and dad at home. So not only was she raising me and my sister, but she was raising everybody else. And um, it 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 also shaped me too because now I'm watching her and all the 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 work that she's done. Um, you know, helping kids. She was doing gang violence workshops. She was doing all sorts of things, right? And I was I was lucky enough to be able to attend those early. Um, and I think that's like you're saying, it's, it's really how it shaped me into where I am now thinking about it because, um, you know, they were always a family of helpers. Like you said, yeah. um, they were always bringing in people, not only just, not only just, uh, the work they're doing in the foster care system, but, um, family, you know, yeah. and as indigenous people, it's, it was often uh, a situation where you'd be raising a cousin or a nephew or a grandkid. And uh, so, you know, I had cousins that were coming to live with us. And I had, um, you know, a lot of relatives that were coming through and, and, and living that with us. People come for coffee and stay for two months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, make a bed in the basement. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. and now now they're now the You guys need
1: to away. go get groceries. I'm going to be here a while.
2: <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it was nice in that way because then we always had someone mowing the lawn. Yeah. had a dishwasher. Some help, help. <laughs> But yeah, it really did. Uh, it really did shape me into to who I am. I think uh, you know I struggled uh, early in, in my teens, um, trying to figure out who I was. Mm-hmm. You know, as as any kid, as any teenager, um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. You know, um, where I wanted to go. You know, music was always, always at the root, always at the heart. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, like, you always hear, like, well, you can do music, but you should always have a backup plan, you know. (laughs) Uh, And that was something that even my dad, as a lifelong musician, always told me, you know, get your education, make sure you have a backup plan, make sure you're doing something. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, I went to school and I I did, that's where I went to Emergency Services Academy and got into EMR. Um, I did a little bit of work with that for a bit. And then I kind of took a pause and then started going into, uh, machining. Um, and then really, I just started playing music full time. You know, I was like, I'm 20, I'm going to get out there. And, and I was playing with my dad and I started freelancing with people. Um, and really just kind of enjoying that. And, and it really, you know, brought me, um, to the place I am now. Uh, it took me a while to figure out and I don't even know if I still want to do this forever. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's one of those jobs that uh, that I'm doing now. It's it seems like it could be a great career forever, but you know I always want to do more. Yeah, and, and I always yeah.
0: always find- expanding. And I think like I wouldn't I wouldn't really call it a, like a, a plan B. I would call it like something that you're meant to do mm-hmm. as well as music. You mm-hmm. know, we're always expanding ourselves as artists and as individuals of how do we express and how do we bring people together uh, through what we love to do mm-hmm. you know because it is kind of almost like because uh, we're not making a, a ton of money when we do these uh you know this community work but mm-hmm. it's it's a good part for our souls and mm-hmm. you know it's it's something good for for you know the community you know and I just wanted to ask you about um you know how does you know why is it important or is it important to you uh to see more males in these roles of you know where you're in. You know where you're running programs and stuff, and and you know being a part of uh, you know helping and stuff. Why is it important? Do you think for for men to be in those positions? I think
2: you know. I think it's important because there's there's got to be balance. There has to be balance. Um, you know, with everything we do in life, there's, there's always got to be balance. You know, you can have, you can have really negative days, but you have to have the positive and you have to see the positives. Um, but I think that reflects into what we're doing. I mean, we need women and men in, in everything that we're doing, but a very good balance. Um, and I often find that with, uh, even teachings with elders, um, both sides have really good perspectives. Mm-hmm. And if you don't learn both sides of those perspectives, um, you're only learning one half of the story, I feel. So, um, i think having both men and women um in these roles but but for men i think it's it's really important because um you know we've been often the the hunter and gatherers you know the ones out there doing the work but i think over the the years um a lot of that role has really shifted um into in in a, in a good way i mean women are coming up and, and doing a lot of the work but but men are kind of feel. I feel like they're losing their ways um, in a lot of ways because um, a lot of the programs and stuff have been really directed towards um, you know motherhood and, and and different things like that. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's when I became a dad, um, there wasn't really any fatherhood programs that I could find. Yeah, um, and you know, it was it was tough as a dad because you know I'm raising a boy now. Um, and it's like, okay, so what do I do? You know, I could, and I would ask my dad and I would ask, you know, different males in my life, you know, how, how I can manage this. Um, and you know, of course I would talk to my mom because like I said, she was mom and dad, right? So she had, she had both of those, um, roles when my dad was away. But, um, I found that the, the fatherhood, um, programming wasn't, wasn't there. And and maybe, maybe I couldn't find it. Maybe there was something there, but, um, it wasn't readily available. And that was a big issue for me um, because, you know, I kind of felt lost and, and luckily, you know, r- five years ago, I, I had Google because right? yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't yeah. know how someone could have did it 20, 30 years ago yeah. when, mm-hmm. when they didn't have those options. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that was an issue, too, because you didn't have any help. Mm-hmm. So you kind of raised someone the way that you felt was the best. And yeah, you didn't know. I mean, who's to tell you what's the best? I and mean, even reading Google, some of the things you're looking at, you're like, I don't know if I want to do that. Like, that's yeah. kind of a, a yeah. weird way of, you know, yeah, teaching somebody, right? My so. dad
1: always says this, you know, we learn how to raise your kids from our parents. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, people learn how to raise their kids from books. He's like, whatever we did was never good enough, I guess. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. I think it's it's also you know where our parents came from, right? We got yeah, to yeah. look at that, and mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and yeah, there is you're you're right. There's I've never heard of any programs for you know, especially back then, and mm-hmm. like especially when even when I had uh, my two boys, like I never heard of in, any programs. It mm-hmm. was just like, and then also like you know, growing up with like a residential school mentality, mm-hmm. which you know I'm still fighting with today. Um, you know, it's hard to ask for help as a man, mm-hmm. right? It's hard to reach out and, and make that phone call or mm-hmm. whatever it is, you know? So I, I always found that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's also hugely important for men to be involved in the programming and, uh, you know, to to give that perspective for sure. So I'm glad that you're doing it. And so did you find yourself, like when you were working with, um, uh, you know, with the M- MMIW And you know all those movements. Were you like one of the only males in in those positions, or
2: actually, it's surprising. There was uh, myself and Ralph Cardinal. Um, He's incredible. He was like a mentor. How many
0: women? Yeah, (laughs) lots, a lot of women.
2: Um, But I find in those roles because it's a it's a very compassionate. It's a very, very heavy hearted, you know, you have to be extremely compassionate. You have to empathetic. be able to yeah, empathetic and listen. And, um, you know, you're listening to families re-traumatize themselves by telling their stories mm-hmm. or looking at autopsy reports or whatever the case is. Right. Um, and oftentimes the people that are sitting as, across the table are men in, yeah. in uniform in, you know, in, in different aspects, right? Uh, they have that power differential. Um, you know, a lot of RCMP uh, officers that we dealt with were, were males, right? So, um, and, and a lot of p- the families we were dealing with were, were female. Um, a lot of the, the mothers and the sisters that were coming out. Um, so on my side, on this, on the, the the working side, so there was myself and Ralph um, in in the unit. And across all, across Canada, I'm not sure exactly how many Males were were involved in the initiative, but uh, a lot of the the units were f- were female, heavily you know mm-hmm. uh, prominent female. But um, you know it's it was interesting to see that, and even in government today, uh, like the roles that I'm in, um, it's a very uh, female heavy um, work environment, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if it's just because it's Alberta and a lot of men, you know, are, have that, I don't know what it is about Alberta, but there's a lot of that trade mentality, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I a lot of, that. <laughs> a lot of guys are out doing the the trades and well, they can make a ton of money, right? So yeah. That's the thing, right? Well, they got to trade yeah. their life for the work, but mm-hmm. I mean,
1: you got to do what you got to do.
2: Exactly. So, um, you know, I think that's where you see a lot of the workforce going, right? Um, yeah. And so it's interesting, uh, but I, I do see a, a really good balance now. There's a really good balance of uh, uh, both male and female in, in the workplace. And, um, but yeah, it, it was interesting to see Um the the neat thing is with that group was there was it was called the Helping Us Grow Group. It was a um, an elder advisory committee that we had set up. Will Tracy had set up, um, and and they brought elders from across the province. So we did have a lot of male representation on that elders um, committee. Uh, Dave Matillipe from Up in Peace River, and Butch Wolf Lake from down Sixica area. Um, so. You know, it was a nice balance because we had Teresa uh, Corky, you know, Corky Corky. from from Red Deer. Yeah, Yeah. she's on that committee. Uh, Dr. Maggie Hodgson was on that committee. Um, Teresa Strawberry. So, you know, some of the best people I've ever met um, and learned from. And it was nice because when we would go to those meetings, you had both sides. You had both perspectives. Um, the male and the female, but he also had both teachings from from both sides. So um, it was like, you know, it, it grounded us, and, and it really helped, um, you know, Ralph, myself, and and all the, the ladies that we worked with really ground ourselves and connect, so. Um, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it was really good. I got a question for you.
1: In your position, <clears throat> sorry, in your position, you're taking on a lot of people's trauma. Mm-hmm. Every day, day in and day out. And from my own experience as a frontline worker, I know that that can be tough. And um, do you have some kind of self-care plan in pay- place? And can, if so, can you explain what a self-care plan is for our male viewers that may not know? Because self-care is something that we talk a lot about in frontline work. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know from experience that I wasn't very good at it because mm-hmm. <laughs> I had to take two, two leaves from work doing, mm-hmm. you know, because of the trauma that I took on from other people. But how do, how do, how do you deal with that?
2: Well, self-care, it's got a lot of definitions. Um, it can mean, you know, that word can mean a lot to different people. Um, I find as a, as a man, uh, like you said, growing up, you never asked for help. You never, you know, you'd always bottle things down. Um, and myself, too, I came from a residential school. I'm a second-generation residential school survivor. Um, and it was, you know, like my, my dad would be gone often. So, you know, I never had an opportunity to talk with him about anything, um, and get his perspectives, but he was also the first generation survivor and he never really talked about his emotions or, you know, it wasn't like, uh, something we really showed. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was, it, something I never learned until actually in like five years ago when I started in this role and started talking to elders and going to ceremony and, and uh, being a part of that and being, you know, being told it's okay to, to show emotion. It's okay to feel this way. Um, so self-care for me, I mean, growing up, I, I didn't really understand what that meant. Um, I never, I never definitely def- didn't do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. and I bottled everything in, you know, um, and then bottling everything in turns into anxiety and it turns into depression and it turns into stress and it turns into sickness. Um, and I think those things I wish I knew a lot earlier. So self-care now for me um, is something that, you know, we can escape with. So for me, um, hobbies, m- music, I mean, geez, through the pandemic, I could feel myself. I was, I was really working on myself. I was getting up there. Then the pandemic hit and it was just like, you know, two years without being able to do my self-care. Two years of um, backward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I literally, you know, when started going downhill, I could feel it mentally. I could feel my body going back into that little pit that I was crawling out of for so long. Um, so self-care for me has definitely been music, uh, but self-care, self-care, I think for anyone that's listening would be, what makes you feel good? What makes you feel happy? What makes you, you know, take away some stress? I mean, uh, ceremony is a huge one. Sweats. I mean, so I, I love going to sweat, sweat lodge ceremonies just to, to um, recoup, you know, kind mm-hmm. of. Come. It's like a reset. Button. It, it yeah. is. It's um, like a rebirth. It, exactly. And, um, you know, smudging. Daily smudging, I think you know, grounding ourselves out in nature, going outside, taking your shoes off and your socks off, and just walking around in the grass. I mean, exercise
0: helps. Oh. Spending on, yeah time outside for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, exercise is huge. Huge, as huge. you can tell, I'm a pretty big uh, <laughs>
1: proponent of exercise. Yeah. <laughs> but I do actually exercise every day now. So yeah, that's awesome. Because you know, health is. I don't know, like I'm 48 years old and I I come to realize that I have definite cycles in what I'm doing all the time. Like I'll be good for a while. And then, like you said, I I suffer from depression. I'll go into a little bit of a depressive state for a while. Mm -hmm. Then I got to fight my way out of it. And then, you know, with that goes weight fluctuations, mood fluctuations. And, you know, it's always a constant battle. But you have to keep restarting and retrying because if you don't...
2: Oh yeah, then you're back yeah. at square one. Yeah, and I think like you got to practice it every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Self care is something that you know um, you should be doing it as much as you do anything else. Well, you know if you're working all day and you're like you're bringing in trauma and you're listening to other people's trauma and you're dealing frontline work, then you got to go out and you got to decompress. You got to. You gotta find what makes you happy. You gotta do that for a bit and just kind of reset. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, video games. A lot of people are like, "Oh, video games are terrible," but for a lot of people I know that do frontline work, they'll they'll just go drive a car around for you know twenty five minutes and just listen to music loud and just you know zone out in that. You know, they'll pick up their guitar, they'll um, they'll write poetry, they'll do anything that kind of gets them out of that that mindset, right? And
1: develop the ability to leave what you're dealing with at work at work and not take it home. Cause that's the hardest part.
2: Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, again, the, the, the pandemic really showed how hard that was. Um, you know, for me, my decompression from work oftentimes was getting into my car, driving, you know, home from work and just thinking about my day and leaving it as I'm driving and, yeah. and getting ready to go home and be with my son and uh, you know, cook dinner and do things like that. Um, but working from home, it no was really. like, close your laptop and you're here and you don't, and you're, and you know, you don't have that disconnect. You don't have that, that second to, to, to escape, you know? So you would close your laptop and then, you know, you have your son who wants your attention now and, and you don't have that minute to, to lose it and, uh, get rid of that, um, trauma that you've been dealing with or the issues at work or anything. I mean, frontline service or, or any work that you're doing, you have to really find that, that minute for yourself. And especially as men, um, I, I find that, um, you know, there's a, a lot of expectation uh, on what we do and, mm-hmm. and who we are and what we, we, we're expected to do in society and in life. Um, and those pressures can really, really get to you. And if you don't take that second to, to you know decompress and, and, and do something yourself. for yourself exactly yeah exactly because we're often doing things for other people you know yeah. helping out as much as we can um you know with family with friends mm-hmm. and, and you know whatever it is it's its you got to find that second
0: yeah i think it's only recently that i guess us as men have been thinking about our our mental health our physical health all those type of things like you know Working out with the uncles and stuff was mm-hmm. was was one thing, right, but actually watching what you eat, all those type of things you know was never something that we talked about, and also how you feel mentally you know like how how was your day, how was your you know how's your uh, mental thinking and all those things you know how
1: did that make you feel yeah. did any of your uncles ever ask you that
0: yeah no <laughs> not at all no no you weren't allowed to say how you felt yeah. only if it felt good eh yeah <laughs> then you yeah. could say it was okay yeah. you know yeah exactly <laughs> but you know but yeah i and i just you know i uh, i got a a question for you that um you know, uh so being Metis and getting into these positions, um, how did you were you welcomed in being um Metis and you know, you, you were finding out history about your about the land and all those things. Tell me about your, your journey as being um, a Metis uh, worker that may be around some uh you know, full nation people and mm-hmm. that type of thing. How was that was that for you?
2: You know, I found in the professional world, um, there's a lot more training for diversity. There's a lot more, um, you know, inclusion, training, diversity, especially in government. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't any, you know, um, issues with Métis people or, you know, like I, n- I never felt any, uh, any different than anybody else, which was, you know, a really, really nice thing. Um, like my, my my manager she was raised in saddle lake um she is white but she was raised by and and was married into a, a native family um so she was she was like right from saddle lake like you yeah. wouldn't know anything uh, any different right so mm-hmm. she, she taught me a lot i mean everyone in my unit uh, was indigenous um and uh a few people weren't but they they really in you know Learned about the culture and really wanted to learn about the culture. And that's really where I learned about what Métis was. Because I, I knew I was Métis. I knew I was from the Métis settlement. But I didn't understand what that meant.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, mm-hmm. I had no idea about my culture. Uh, again, another thing uh, from the residential school system. Uh, it wasn't really taught and practiced in my house. Um, yeah. You know, I heard about it. My, I saw my dad smudge once in a while, like here and there. But it was almost like it was, it was hidden in a mm-hmm. way, you know? Like mm-hmm. he didn't want to... He didn't want to show us because even my cookum um, you know, not wanting to teach language because that's what got them in trouble. Yeah. So she never like she always teach English to the her, her kids so they could get further in life and they didn't have to deal with what she did. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, even my language, which is Machif, um I think there was Last in the year of the language, there's 600 people in the world that speak it left. Wow. So it. it's literally <laughs> wow. a going extinct. So yeah. my
0: cooking used to speak as yeah. well. Yeah. Machif as well. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And it's a beautiful language. I mean,
1: my Muslim spoke Machif as well. Oh, yeah. His, his mother was Metis.
2: Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Like it's a beautiful language. And, you know, there's a lot of places up north like Paddle Prairie. Um, they they speak often. I mean, the ghost keepers, a lot of people up there, they really keep that language alive yeah. um, and back home like Elmer, Elmer ghost keeper. He's a, uh, you know, he's a incredible, incredible elder and, uh, he keeps that language alive, but, um, growing, you know, growing up as Métis, like I said, my identity, I never understood it. I never mm-hmm. really got it. And, uh, um, and growing up in Edmonton and then outside of Shore park, um, I never understood it because I was never around it. I was always around, you know, other people, other cultures, except indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. until, you know, but I learned what being indigenous was, um, from fighting, which mm-hmm. was crazy. It was, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I went to school in Shore Park and obviously I'm not very visibly indigenous, but, um, what do you mean you look like me? <laughs> so, yeah, but I would go to school, and I think it was in grade three and four. Um, I'd go to school, and I had a bunch of friends, and everyone it was all good. And then one day my dad came and picked me up. Yep. And my dad's super dark, you know, like vis- visibly indigenous. And uh, they're like, who's that? And I'm like, well, that's my dad. You know what I'm grade four. Like, I don't know how old you are, eight, ten, around there. Um, and then they're like, oh, you're an Indian. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah I am, of course I am. And, I like, yeah. and then and then it's like, oh, so now it's cowboys versus Indian. I told you we <laughs> live parallel lives.
1: I grew up in Red Deer, same oh, shit. Oh yeah. Same shit.
2: Yeah. So every recess that was the game. And I was the only Indian. So it was everyone versus me. Um, so and that went on for three, four years until junior high. When kids started understanding it a little bit more and, you yeah. know, you start getting older and you don't, you know, um, but I never blamed them for it. You know, like as I got older, I, I, I never, you know, was never angry at them. I was angry, angry at where they learned it from. Yeah. I was angry at the, the, the people cause that's taught Race, yeah, racism is. is taught. Yeah. And, uh, so I knew, you know, as I got older and understood it more, I'm like, you know, I was angry at the the, the parents. But at the,
1: some point, they got to figure it out too. Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot, and you know what? A lot
2: of a lot of people did apologize. Yeah, when we got older, yeah, uh, there was the folks that he said, you know, I'm sorry for for doing that, and I never
0: understood. Yeah. Right? So yeah, well, it was different times, yeah. right? It was mm-hmm. it was something that was a little more you know, accepted, you know, Mm -hmm. to say some of these things. The reason why I asked you that is because in some of our, uh, you know, in in some of our traditional ways, you know, a lot of our elders, you know, they, you know, when they went to the residential school, they have that survivor's mentality. And, you know, so, you know, in some of, you know, with some of our elders, we're not accepted if you're not, you know, as dark Mm -hmm. to learn these and that's not only for Métis, that's for, uh, like, regular Indigenous people, you know, that I've seen where, you know, you're not quite accepted into, you know, the ceremonial or, or learning some of the ceremonial ways because you're not as dark as some of the other people. And I've just seen that, right? So I just, I have to be honest about, you know, these things. And, you know, I've I've experienced it myself. And so, you know, I, I that's why I ask mm-hmm. you, you know. Um, You know, and I know that, uh, you know, with, with time and everything, our elders are learning and, uh, not all of our elders are like that for sure. Not all of our ceremony people are like that, but, you know, I've definitely seen, you know, a a different treatment between some of the ones that were, were more, you know, I guess, native colored and then some of the ones that were more light. I was considered, you know, even light, you know, Mm -hmm. on, on my reserve and, um, you know, and then considered an Indian in, in, the, in the city, right? So it's just kind of living in, in both of those worlds. But, you know, I know that our, our, uh, our elders and, and everybody are learning from our, our new generation, you know, mm-hmm. which is really awesome, you know, mm-hmm. because it's important that we, you know, celebrate everybody that wants to learn, you know, mm-hmm. that has Indigenous blood inside of them, whether you want to learn or not. You know, I think it should be uh, accepted, and you know, it should be celebrated that we want to yeah. share that with our next generation and, and, and with our with our children. You know, mm-hmm. so I was talking to you earlier, um, and you said that there is you know, and now and I know that uh, you have some names to mention, and unfortunately, we we're going to have a guest on today, but uh, you know, things happen, people are busy, and but tell me a little bit about the project. Um, That you're involved in, or the committee you sit on, where you guys are going to be celebrating Indigenous men?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I'll give you a little backstory. So, four years ago, um, my colleague Janice Randhal, she was with the MMIWG, the the Family Information Liaison Unit, um, and she approached me, and we were just having lunch and we're talking about this uh, this initiative that she she's been working on, and at that time she was working on it for six or seven years, I think, at that time. Um, but it was only an idea, right? And it was an idea that uh, she came up with with some of her ceremony, brothers and sisters, that had this idea to celebrate Indigenous men and to honour Indigenous men um, because, you know, as a, as a woman who's raising a boy as a single mom, she saw, you know, a lot of the traumas and the issues that were happening, not only within her, her family, within her household, but with within the communities, right? Um, and she came up with this idea to give back to the men and help raise these men up um, to get out of those cycles. And so when she approached me, um, we sat on that idea for about a year and, and talked about it and kind of, you know, what can we do? Like, how can we do this? Like, what do we want to do? Like, how can we help these indigenous men? And, uh, it came down to, you know, honoring them with, with an award, with a award that they can, um, aspire to achieve at some point right mm-hmm. um and and how that was uh, how it kind of came about was you know we look at the Esquio awards or you know the inspire awards and these different awards for indigenous people um but like something like the inspire award they're they're really good but i mean they're they're very you have to be, you have to be very um successful or you have to be very very um um, prominent and indigenous communities to, to kind of get some of those awards. Or with the Esqueyo, you know, it's a, it's a female-based award, um, which is amazing. You know, we're honoring our women and, and the achievements that they are doing. Um, but Janice had felt that men were kind of getting pushed down a little bit in, in certain aspects um, or not at the same level. So mm-hmm. she wants to really see, like we were talking about balance earlier. Um, we need to balance both those sides out because, you know, we look at we look at indigenous culture in the circle and, you know, we have the elders and the the, the children in the middle. Then we have the, the women around them and then we have the men around the, the whole group as the warriors. And, you know, each of those circles needs to be healthy. And, you know, we've been working on the children and the children that are coming up are, are doing amazing work. Um, and the elders are helping that. They're teaching, like you said, they're becoming, you know, more in, involved. They're understanding that, you know, the generations and the times are changing. Mm-hmm. Um, the women, you know, our beautiful, strong Indigenous women are, are really, you know, picking up the pieces and and, and helping themselves get through the traumas and, and healing. Um, but when I'm walking home from the Brownlee building to, I park near the mustard seed, I see a lot of Indigenous men out there still. You know, they're, they're sleeping outside, you know, the, the homeless, the homelessness, I think it's a high number of men still. And, um, that's what we wanted to honor. We wanted to look at that. We wanted to, to say, you know, who are our leaders? Who are these people that, you know, we need to bring up, we need to fix that outer circle. We need to make it stronger, um, and we need to, to show that there are leaders in the communities. Mm-hmm. And whether it's, you know, we have several awards. We have um, seven awards that are based off the seven teachings. Um, we have like the Jimmy Herman um, Performance Award. We have the Mike Galagia Warrior, Wounded Warrior Award. Um, we have awards for leaders in all aspects of life. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a leader on the street. Because there are leaders in the street. I mean, you know that you worked you work front lines. You saw them. There is people out there that are helping people on the street when they're on the street themselves, right? You know, there is elders out there. There is um, everyday dads. So. Oh yeah, everyone. Yeah. Um, they're within they're within the prison systems. They're within they're incarcerated. There is leaders in those prisons that are trying to help the youth or, or, or their fellow man. Um, break their traumas and, and get out of there. Right. Maybe they're lifers, maybe they're doing a hard time, but they're trying to help the younger ones not do that and not keep coming back into those systems. Um, and we want to honor those men as well, because, you know, those are the men that need it the most, you know? Um, and so what we what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be having an our, our awards ceremony. So this is going to be, when's this released in January, December, January somewhere December, or like that. December yeah. January December January somewhere yeah. around there. So uh, the award shows are need happened. time, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. So we're going to be having it in November um, okay. on the 18th, and it's going to be at City Hall. Um,
1: well, so why don't you tell us who's going to win, and if it's going to be in November? <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't had the
2: nominations yet. Yeah. And, and, well, the way we want to do the nominations, though. <laughs> um, and and Kurt, I was kind of talking about this with you. It's it's we often see popularity contests and and all these kind of award
0: shows. where oh, yeah. music? I mean, music actors, everything. those type of things. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it can't be a uh, popularity contest. It's got to be like people that are putting in the work, mm-hmm. not how many likes you get mm-hmm. and all those things. I I, I totally got gotcha you on that. I don't know
1: if I could qualify on either then, because I don't get many
2: likes. And and the
0: way
2: well the way we wanted to do it is uh, no pictures of people, and just their story, what they've done, and their accomplishments in life. So it's
1: like the voice, but with (laughs) exactly, exactly, yeah. (laughs) yeah.
2: And and you're not looking at a person's name. You're not looking at a person, what they, what they visibly look like. Cause we all have unconscious bias. We all, you know, we could look at someone and someone who looks different than this person, you know, you might be more attracted to vote for that person. Right. So you take, take away that you just listen to the person's story and you vote on who they are as a person rather than what they look like or how many likes they got on Facebook. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that's how we're going to be doing it um, the initial, the initial nomination process, we're going to be doing it through the committee for the first year. And then we're going to be putting up the nomination website. That's going to be up. It'll be up right now, actually, when you're listening to this. So, um, you'll be able to go to the website and, and start putting in nominations for people that, you know, in your community. And And it's
0: check it out. Yeah. And you said you guys are going to start at city hall. Yeah. And are you, is there going to be a walk?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So we picked city hall, um, to make a statement in, in a way, uh, we want to really, you know, in, show that this is, is so important. And another reason why is so those men that get nominated from Boyle Street, from Mustard Seed in those areas can actually get there and come and mm-hmm. be present. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to have the mayor there, uh, city council, and uh, we're going to be doing, we're going to be taking the awards show across Alberta every year. So we're going to have host nations and host communities that are going to host it. Um, but the Warrior Walk is a is a whole separate piece that we kind of wanted to include. And uh, uh, Leonard Cardinal and Janice had actually talked about this um, quite some time ago, and it was one of those things too that kind of get put put down on the side. And we decided to incorporate it into the, the awards. And excuse me, what we're going to be doing is we're going to have all of the 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 women the the cookums the aunties the moms the sisters all waiting at the ledge and we're going to have all the warriors all the men who are nominated and every man that wants to come with this warrior walk start at city hall and and march to the legislature to be welcomed and to be greeted by the women um, to really you know honor them and and really make that connection again um, and we did it by the ledge it's, it's good because it's by the water and uh, we really want to incorporate the water into uh, the ceremony. So, um, you know, it's it's going to be important. We're going to be doing it this Sunday before the awards. Um, and we're going to, you know, have all of our men from, from every nation that we can get out there to, to really support this walk.
0: That's amazing. That's, you know, I, I think that that's kind of what we need, like, you know, is to have more men walks and mm-hmm. to recognize that, you know, a lot of our Indigenous men are also missing and murdered and I, and i really appreciate that uh, you know the walks have started to include men mm-hmm. you know when they talk about those things cuz i guess there is you know while well, there is there is a lot of us that are uh, you know missing and murdered mm-hmm. out there and you know it's it, i think and you know that's why we're doing this this podcast as well mm-hmm. is to honor people uh, in the community that are doing wonderful things such as yourself i think it's important that we have Uh, something that celebrates men that's created by men and you know it's time that we you know have programs and learn how to you know heal and create those safe spaces for men Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to express themselves and uh, to find answers through speaking to each other Mm -hmm. you know I Mm -hmm. think it's it's super important and so for what you do uh, and everything that you've done, I think it's uh, you're a perfect guest to be on this podcast, and I I thank you for being here. Oh, uh, thank you, know, you. And one of the, uh, uh, do you got a, one more question? Do you got a? No, I was just
1: okay. gonna say that Matt Patno is definitely a deadly uncle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> deadly. And I just got one one more yeah, uh, question that I kind of been asking all the guests. Um, you know, uh, you know, looking at at a place like palm makers there um you know it's 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 a beautiful beautiful facility um you know uh do you think it's important for us to have a space like that that's like non um uh i guess non uh, uh um, what do you call uh being in a non-treatment yeah. non-treatment center uh-huh. a non-treatment center that is uh that is, uh, you know, a place for us to pray, a safe uh, spot for us to have our sweats that's within the city limits. That's actually within the downtown core would be really cool to see. Because if you look at how many non-indigenous places there is to place pray, such as churches and mosques and mm-hmm. those things that we see around, you know, the hundreds that are, are surrounding Edmonton here. Um, how important do you think it is for, for us as Indigenous people or Métis people or whoever, all of us together, to be able to have a, a, a safe space to to pray?
2: <laughs> I think it's probably the most important. I mean, we're talking about self-care. We're talking about, you know, healing the circle and fixing the circle. We're talking about honoring men. Everything. It all comes down. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of people who don't follow their culture and, and they have other beliefs um but for those that want to learn their culture where do they start where do you start like if i didn't get into government and get into the position i am in now um with the people i I am with now i would have never learned i would have never had that opportunity like i i've seen people smudge at different events and you hear people pray but oftentimes when back home they're praying um in, you know, in Catholicism or, you know, Christianity. And yeah. it's, it's a lot of our Indigenous people still follow those beliefs, right? So yeah. um, I would have never never been able to do it, but I've always wanted to. And I've always wanted to learn. So if there was a place for Indigenous men and people to go where they could openly pray and not feel like you're kind of an outcast. Um, and, and why I say that is because, for example, when we, when we were doing family meetings, um, with the MMIWG, uh, uh, a lot of people wanted to smudge. I mean, you know, before they go into court, they wanted to smudge. They wanted to, to you know, ground themselves. I know a lot of families would take little pieces of sage and they put it in their shoe while they're in court, so they could just be that have that connection, you know, to to relax them and 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 pr- be prepared for that the trauma that they're going to be facing. And they would we were told to go outside by the muster point or yeah. you know go to the corner get off get off the property and go stand on the sidewalk over here um, you would never say that to anybody you would yeah. never say that you never tell someone who, uh, you know a muslim person to go pray on the sidewalk you know there's yeah. there's places now in a lot of buildings that allow for prayer for for anybody yeah. um, but they won't allow smudging yeah you know and or they yeah. won't allow this or that so having a place where someone can be take away those barriers and actually just be themselves and, and, and have that barrier-free um, ceremony where they can have that open, uh, open-hearted connection with, you know, Creator or whatever they want to do, uh, I think is so important. And having healthy elders, have, having healthy male elders and, and, and female elders in there running these places. Um, because like you said, they're often tied to treatment centers. Yeah. Or, or prisons. Yeah. Or
1: you but what know, happens after they leave the treatment center and they leave the prison? Where do they where do they practice what they learn? They get right? told exactly. to go
2: to the sidewalk. You know, or do they, they get much, told
1: to right? go out to the bush and mm-hmm. you know, and then not a lot of them don't have the ability to do that. No.
0: Know? No, there's a lot of people that are within every major city across Turtle Island that they don't have the options to, to go out to the bush. And I think we need to also change our mentality as indigenous people to think that we should be out there. No, we should have a center in every major city for us to pray, to have our sweats mm-hmm. indoor and outdoor mm-hmm. throughout the winter, have an indoor place with, with buffalo hides and stuff for us to be able to pray. Just kind of exactly what you see at at Palm Makers would be awesome to mm-hmm. see that in every major city. And, you know, as we were speaking about it yesterday, they spent a whole lot of money for an apology. uh, And it would have been nice to see some of that money, actually go towards these these programs and projects instead of, mm-hmm. instead of
1: Well, apparently there millions. will be eventually coming <laughs> so, from, you know, there's always the promise of something from the Catholic Church. Yeah, so yeah, well, eventually they'll be investing money into our programs, but and then you know, going, time will tell. Right? And then
0: kind of going with the narrative that uh, it's all the taxpayers' money that will pay for it, blaming the Indigenous people again. But, you know, it's just, it's all work in, its, in itself, so... <laughs> But uh, thank you so much for being on. uh, Thank you both. Awesome. You're you're an awesome uh, deadly uncle and keep up the the wonderful work that you're doing. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Cool.
1: You're listening to the deadly uncle podcast,
0: a safe space for deadly uncle conversations.